Happy Pentecost Sunday. There you go. Josiah's not here, but I'm sure he's watching on Facebook. He's going to love the 80s music reference. <laughs> but today, we finally get to Babel. Um, we did the, the Table of Nations last week, and we did the setup stuff that Genesis is trying to convey before we get directly into the story of the Tower of Babel. Um, kind of what we went through last week. At the Table of Nations, we talked about what the Table of Nations represents as a wholeness, 70 nations representing the whole area of the Mediterranean. Um, it is Pentecost Sunday, and this is going to end up being a Pentecost sermon at the end. Don't worry. It all comes back together at the end. Um, and then there we talked about the dividing of nations that was referenced in Genesis 10. Remember, we said 10 and 11 really go to... The traditional scrolls don't have books or don't have chapters. They don't have verses. That's a totally modern thing that we've, we've done to make it easier for us. So sometimes we feel like things are out of order at times when actually it's just somebody who's telling a story who just keeps repeating within the same story, but we've already put things on it. So, so Genesis 10 just kind of it fits really nicely with Genesis 11. It's just supposed to be a whole sprawling story. And uh, where we left off, we, they talk about an individual named, as, named Peleg, and we'll come back to that in a couple weeks here. Um, but after it talks about Peleg, it says, and these were the generations of Noah and his family, and then we move from Noah and his family. We also have been talking about what's wrong. So, so the world has many things that are wrong with it. Genesis 1 through 11 is laying down what happens in the beginning. It's laying down with the problems of the world. It is the world history, 1 through 11. Um, after we get done with 11, we get into 12, and we get the story of Abraham's family. But first, we want to talk about what happened to all of humanity and what all of humanity is dealing with. So the problem, the first problem we had in Genesis 3 is this reminder of the entrance of sin and death. And we're introduced to a spiritual being that we get, gets referenced as the serpent, uh, our problem, too, is depravity and like the hyperinflation of sin, and that was Genesis kind of 4 through 6, the rise of sin. And then you have uh, our first reference again to the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim in Hebrew coming down and mating with human women in the, everything that happens there. So that's the Genesis 6 issue. That was problem number two. Problem number three is actually the Tower of Babel, and we don't really talk about this much in Sunday school because there's a lost, lost understanding of this that's only recently really started to come, come back into the church. The early church, uh, all the early church leaders believe this. They'll, they'll write about it. We did a little thing about the patristics earlier on this year, and uh, nearly everybody mentioned in the patristics saw the three problems in the world kind of the same way. What happens with those early fathers is they focus on one of these problems more than they focus on the other. So sometimes you get a strange view from them, but they believe that they're there. So for example, uh, we talked about a guy named Irenaeus. He was an early church father. And Irenaeus really, really focuses on problem two. He's really worried about those demons that come from the flood killing the Nephilim. Nephilim. And then you have someone like Augustine that we've heard about, St. Augustine. He focuses on problem one, which is sin and death. And since Western culture is really built, um, Augustine has influenced Western culture, just not, not only the church, but how we think of man and the sinful nature of man. Augustine's emphasis has really put that emphasis in our own culture on problem one. If you were to go talk to somebody from an Eastern Orthodox church, they would say, oh yeah, there's three problems. Here are the three problems. But Western culture has really latched on to number one. And Genesis 1 through 11, it, it doesn't stop with the entrance of sin and death. It continues to tell you the rest of the problems. And I think it's important that we look at those problems and understand what's wrong with our world. And that things are deeper in our world with our problems. And that it's not just sinful men that make our world the way that it is. Uh, the church loses a spiritual, natural outlook. And uh, this, is, this is the worldview of everybody that wrote your Bible right here. These problems have to be addressed. And Jesus addresses all three of these. 
And so Tower of Babel plays into that. It's important. It's why it's in the Bible. It's a strange story that we get in Sunday school. And there's a lot of questions we have as we hear it because there's things that don't make sense. But once you understand the rest of the story, if you read Genesis 10 and you see some stuff highlighted, and then as you go through your Bible, uh, and we'll talk about our homework passages that I gave out last week, you see what the problems are. So we're going to read through Genesis 11. We're going to read through the Tower of Babel story. It's very short. And then we're going to go from there on its context throughout all of Scripture. So Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So what they're saying on this point is you can't really, it's it's a smaller map. I should have done a separate picture for that map. But that is the, uh, you have, I wish I said a pointer. That water down at the bottom is the Persian Gulf. So you can see what this is, what we would call in all of our history classes, the Mesopotamian world. That green area that's along all the rivers is the Mesopotamia. And that circle is where a lot of scholars believe this plain of Shinar are. The plain of Shinar is. And that's also where you get all your cities that are mentioned as the ones that Nimrod built. Um, There are a few scholars that maybe believe it was up further in like the eastern part of Syria, but no one really knows um, for, the, for the context of what Genesis 10 was saying, we're going to go with, with this, this map right there. So they're just laying out right now the area that they're at, and they're showing you that they're using bricks and they're using bitumen, which is different than mortar and stone. All our oldest buildings, the old, old monuments that we find around the world, a lot of that is stone and mortar. It's not, it's not bricks and bitumen. So this is like a tech boost that they're telling you was occurring in this region. Genesis 11, 4. Then they said, and this is the people, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to disperse over the face of the whole earth. So right now, we're getting a little hint of that pride that little hint of we're going to remain in comfort and do what we want, and we're not going to follow that Edenic mandate. Tower, when you think about a tower, it doesn't, we have different ideas in towers these days than what they had in towers back then. And the Hebrew word for tower is migdal. Uh, And migdal can be, it can be what we think of as a tower. A lot of times it can be fortress. So like earlier when we read that passage at the beginning of the church, I think it talked about God being our, our fortress, Fortress is that word. So they're just using that word again. So it can be fortress. It can, mean t- it can be tower. It can be any building that is ascending up. The idea is that it's an ascending up of the building. So some people, when they think the Tower of Babel, they think it's just like the Tower of Pisa, which is kind of how the Renaissance art makes it seem like it's this, this thing. Probably wasn't like that. We really don't have any records or, or stone carvings to tell us that it, it looked like that. So we're going to speculate about that in a little bit. Genesis eleven five, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. So this is a point where we have to look at things. And uh, why is God going to do what he's going to do? Is Yahweh scared of men? No. No, he's not scared of men. So whatever he's going to do here, I I have an idea on what's going on. There was a city before the flood, right? We are told that Cain built that first city. And that first city was like the epicenter for all the nastiness that came. And so here we have, once again, after the flood, we're already starting another repeat. Um, So Yahweh knows what's going on. I mean, he's omnipotent, but he's already seen the trend. Um, Is he worried about a tall building that can actually intrude into the heavens? Is it going to, like, poke into his realm? Because as kids, when we're talking in the Sunday school stories, that's just what they say is his tower that pokes into the heavens. You know, you're going to, they thought they were going to, that's, Yahweh's not worried about that. I don't think he thinks that's a realistic possibility. So, 
There is a thought with that, though, that we'll speculate about later. So keep that in mind. So then what is the concern of this tower of this city? And it's not just the tower, it's the city. These guys are building a giant city. They're going to live comfortably all amongst each other and not do their mandate. I'm going to suggest disobedience. you got Nimrod leading this. We already talked about Nimrod. Uh, I'm going to suggest it's disobedience, number one. It's pride. And this idea that they want to go and reach the heaven with it, I think they have this idea that they can, they can bring heaven to them. It's the idea that they can, create, they can create their own Eden by either they think they're going to somehow dominate Yahweh or they're just going to do it on their own. One language, one world government, that type of thing. We're going to do this. We're going to bring paradise to earth on our own. I think that's what's going on. And as we saw with the city of Cain back in the earlier parts of Genesis, we know that that does not go well. Um, so Genesis eleven seven, this is Yahweh. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So let's just stop on that. Come, let us. Who's us? Who's Yahweh talking to? The assembly. Yeah. The divine council. We'll talk about that. We won't get too much into divine council today. A lot of people use this for a, 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 a working of the Trinitarian view. And I don't think that that's actually, I think he's talking to his, his assembly of angels. That the sons of God that we mentioned already in Genesis 6, some of them were naughty. And they did what they did, but he's still got his divine counsel. He's still got his assembly around the throne. Um, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the, there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Remember, all the nations that are going to come out of that city are there. That's the group of humans. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. The word Babel is a slam in its Hebrew right? It means confusion. That's how the Hebrews are looking at the word Babel. The word Babylon comes from the cuneiform, and I'm not an expert on cuneiform. It would be cool if I was. Go around and read Akkadian stuff and Sumerian stuff, but I'm not. But those words, I can show you that. That's the word. That's the cuneiform for Babylon. And it's fun because this is kind of how cuneiform works. So that first symbol means gate, that second symbol, the symbol of stars, means gods. It's, it's, a, it's a plural gods thing. And all the cultures of the past, including the Bible, will reference the spiritual beings as stars. Stars, the heavenly bodies. It's, it's, that, it's not necessarily that they think that that star is a god. It's that they're, they're referencing that's what those beings are like. And then you also get, that's how we get the title Morning Star and the different things in the Old Testament. So you have gates, then you have gods. I don't remember what the third symbol is. <laughs> I don't remember at all what the third symbol is. But the fourth symbol allows you to understand that this is a place. So that's how they reference that this is an actual place. Um, so there it is. So the Babylonians, who think highly of themselves, when they name their city, they name it the Gate of the Gods. Now, why would they refer to it as the Gate of the Gods? unless there's something going on there. So, there you go. So there's, you can, if you ever see that in Cuneiform again, you know that that's Babylon. But that's how they would refer to it. So right away, you know, the, the Hebrew authors of the Bible, they're, they're slamming it. They're saying this is just a place of confusion and gives you that disorder. And the Babylonians are like, no, it is the gate of the gods. It is where we are from. It is where our greatness springs. Um... Talking about the Tower of Babel, I tend to believe that it was a ziggurat. So you can go back to, what is that, seventh grade social studies or whenever you hit it, you talked a little bit about ziggurats. The idea of a ziggurat, we don't, we don't really have a good look at the Mesopotamian culture anymore because everything is so old. It's like four, some of these buildings are like 4,000 years old. They've been weathered by sand. They've been weathered by rain at times. Uh, the floods, all the different things that have happened. There's like areas now that are just dry and desert that used to be lush gardens that just don't exist anymore. So this is kind of all we have. This is, this is the best, this is the, the closest thing we can look at. This is in Iran, so it didn't get weathered a whole lot. 
but that's not even a complete ziggurat. And so there's this idea with our ancient buildings, not to go all ancient aliens, not going to do that, but there's this idea with these old buildings that you ascend these buildings, it's like ascending to heaven, and when you get to the top, that's where you make the gods come down to see you and talk to you. Literally, a ziggurat is a gate of the gods, in their opinion. That's where the gods are going to come and meet you. So part of this also shows the pride of the people. We're going to build this building, and we're going to make Yahweh, creator of the universe, come down to us and do our bidding. Obviously, that's a very prideful thing to think. So I think it's a ziggurat. So some more pictures. Uh, Marvel Studios has a wonderful art team, very wonderful art team. And they did this movie called The Eternals, and I'm not saying to watch it or not to watch it. I'm just telling you, they did a movie called The Eternals, and they did some art boards. And they did a really good job. I did watch the movie. They did a really good job, an excellent job of portraying what we understand Babylon to look like. And um, it's pretty cool. So this is their idea. And I don't know at what time frame they think this represents. I think it looks like a Neo-Babylonian city, which would be like Nebuchadnezzar time with Daniel. Um, I think they're trying to say that this is like the 4,000 to 5,000-year-old Babylonian portrayal. It might not have been this nice. It may have been. I don't know because I don't have a time machine. But do you notice like it's built on the river and it's very lush around it. And then they did, a, they did a really cool picture of the ziggurat, the idea of the ziggurat. Now, the fun thing about the ziggurat is this could also be what people refer to in history as the, the gardens of Babylon, the famous world wonder. And the idea is that building that's at the top, that's where the gods are going to come to you. And so what they're doing is they're creating a mountain amongst their city that is also a garden because everybody in the ancient world thought that all the gods lived in these mountain gardens. In fact, that's what Eden was. Eden is referred to as the mountain garden of God. And so humans are trying to recreate that. That's the idea. Now you can't, well, you can kind of see on each side of the entrance and in the front, you see these individual statues that kind of look like the Sphinx, but not quite the Sphinx. Those are actually cherubim. So when the Bible is referring to cherubim, that's kind of what the Bible is referring to, is they're referring to these crazy-looking beasts that the Bible describes as crazy-looking hybrid beast things. And the cherubim were throne guardians. They protected the sacred space. So you would have to enter through the cherubim to get to the sacred space. So when you see all these Ark of the Covenant things that people make because the guardians of the Ark of the Covenant sit on the top and they're the cherubim and they always have these like human angels going like this. Those aren't cherubim. There's no historical reference to it looking like that. It's these crazy hybrid looking beasts that would sit on top to protect the sacred space. So... There's more breaking down Sunday school stuff. Um, so they did a pretty good job. There's, there's a good chance that the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and the Ziggurats looked a lot like this. It makes sense based on descriptions. Uh, notice all the water and the blue dye, too. There was this idea of the blue. Um, one of the reasons we know it was like this is because of this. This is actually now in a museum. Back in the late, was it? late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, Germany was sending a lot of archaeologists and scholars down to the region to actually steal these monuments and gates and different things that were really cool and historical and take them back to Berlin, and they, they rebuilt them inside the museum. Um, so this is actually called the Gate of Ishtar. Remember how they, I said they were worshiping Ishtar at times in the past? Ishtar, Anana, Aphrodite, all the different God names for the same spiritual being. Uh, this is the gate of Ishtar restored. You'll notice that to get through the gate, you pass through the lions, the bulls, and the dragons to get into the gate um, as you enter through. And it reminds me right away of Psalm 22, which is the Psalm of the Suffering Servant, where it's depicting Jesus dying on the cross. 
and the bulls are coming in around him and the devouring lions are coming in around him. Those were all depictions of, of power, spiritual power, and the beast, that nature of it. They represented the demonic. So when it talks about, um, you know, pacifying the lions, there's actually a spiritual, there's a spiritual connotation with that too. Snakes, you know, the snakes and scorpions, all these things that they would merge into all these different beasts, that's all like relevant of the demonic. So as you're entering the gate of Ishtar, you're going through her powerful things that she sends and you're going through. Um, so this is in a museum in Berlin. We're going to bring it back to your book club. This is also in the museum in Berlin. This is called the Altar of Zeus, otherwise known in the Bible as the Throne of Satan. And this was in Pergamum. Back like what you're reading in your book, in your book club. This was in Pergamum, and this was another thing they took out of Pergamum, and they took it into Berlin, and they instituted it in a museum. So they're taking all these altars and gates, and they're putting them in this museum, and they all have historical backgrounds with other gods. It's a very strange thing. But, um, so in, in Revelation, when they're talking about the throne of Satan, they're talking about a physical place that was in Pergamum when you're reading through Revelation. And that's now in Berlin because they took it all there. Just strange. Um, I threw this in there because anybody that's lived our lifetime would like to know about this. Saddam Hussein is the archer. And Nebuchadnezzar is driving the chariot for him because Saddam Hussein was so enthralled with all this old Babylonian interest of his that he was actually having these paintings drawn up about him being in the line. He, was, he considered himself in the line of Nimrod. He considered himself in the line of Sargon and of Gilgamesh and of Nebuchadnezzar. He really liked Nebuchadnezzar, enough to the point that he's got Nebuchadnezzar driving his chariot while he's shooting arrows. And notice he's killed a lion with his arrows on the bottom because of the symbology of being able to defeat that stuff back in the day. He's, so he, Saddam Hussein was really, really, really into all the Akkadian, Sumerian, all that, all that knowledge. And he sent people out to find all these places that had spiritual significance. And he started bringing them back to his palace his super palace, which was like almost a wonder of the world in itself. Um, but just to tie it into modern times, this stuff is still influencing people to the point that it influenced this guy, who is one of the, the biggest villains of our time. He drew some influence from that. All right, so the Tower of Babel, we kind of went through it pretty quickly. This is what we think it is, but we don't really see the importance of it. And so this is where we need to get into making those connections throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the New Testament. And this is how we're also going to get to our Pentecost connection. So your homework was to look at Psalm 82, which we'll read through quickly, and look through the first part of Deuteronomy 32. We're going to talk right now about translations of the Bible and source text just a little bit. Most of the early Bibles, your King James Version, were made were taken from these texts that were collected called the Masoretic text. It was a combination of Hebrew texts that people would collect throughout the Middle Ages from the Hebrews, and then they would, train, they would translate it. Some of them are very old. Some of them are like from back 500. Some of them are more in the medieval times. Um, that's how the King James Version came about. But before that, the people of Jesus' time we're actually reading what we call the Septuagint. So the Bible that, that Paul's using, the Bible that the disciples are using to deal with people, because everyone was speaking Aramaic. So there's some Aramaic text, and there's some Greek text. Um, that's the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation. The Greek translation follows the, the writings of that time pretty well. Just translated to Greek. Then you have what we discovered as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And those are even older than most of our copies of the Septuagint. What was really cool is that when you look at what's in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you look at what we have in our modern Bible, that were based off of even the Masoretic text, it's like 96% the same. Which is crazy, considering you're going from 
how many different languages to get where we're at. Because you can have a translation from a source text. We translate it into Latin. Then we're going to take it, we're going to do our best to take it from Latin to early Germanic to high Germanic to English. And so you're going through multiple translations, but it was still so close to the original text. It's crazy. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. God is still working with his book. Um, so, so the reason I'm saying that is because when we get into, into Deuteronomy 32, we're going to see what was lost and refound. All right, Ephesians 6, New Testament. This is Paul. We did an Ephesians study with Bree. Bree went through this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in that evil day. And having done all to stand firm, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as the shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer, and all supplication. To that end, keep alert. With all perseverance, making supplication for, the saint, for the, all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, chains, and that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is where we take most of our knowledge of spiritual warfare from. This is where we, as Christians, look to get that mandate. What we don't talk about is where these rulers and authorities, and cosmic powers, spiritual forces, where they came from. Why is Paul addressing all of these things? Why is this a reality to Paul? Paul is a very learned Jew. Paul knew his Torah. He knew the full Tanakh. He knew it all. He knew his Greek writings. He, he knew a lot. And we're going to come to that. Psalm 82. This is the weird psalm. People don't like to do a lot with this psalm because it's strange. Yahweh has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Salah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. This is Yahweh speaking. You are God's sons of the Most High. That is that word, the Hebrew, B'nai Elohim, again, keeps coming up. All of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O Yahweh, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. In the Septuagint, the word for arise, O Yahweh, is the word, it's the word we get resurrection from. So there's this idea and this understanding that in the resurrection, there is a judgment that's going to come on these beings, which is great. That's fun. It's just good to know that. And that's, so this is one of the areas that Paul is talking about, but we're going to get into the origin here. I just want to point out that there is a reference to these beings like princes, there are the reference of these beings to being spiritual beings. For a lot of times, this is taught that Yahweh is taking his place in a council of dead Israelite judges. That's how they would teach it. Now, we've talked a little bit about people that like to read things into the text. You have to read a significant portion of things into this in order to come up with that. This is weird. For some people, this is, this is pretty weird. This is the acknowledgement that there are other gods on the earth. Now, they are not like Yahweh. Yahweh is the most high. That's why he's referenced as the most high. There are other spiritual beings on the earth. Yahweh is above them all. Arise, O Yahweh, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Whose inheritance was the nations? Jesus. 
multiple times in the Bible, it makes it clear Jesus was to inherit the nations. All right, Deuteronomy 32. This is the Song of Moses. This is where things will start making a little more sense. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. This is what Moses has given out to people before he's, not, he's dead. He's giving them one more reminder of things, and we're not going to read it all because it's fairly long. But we're going to read this first part. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay Yahweh, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. There is that B'nai Elohim, sons of God thing again. But Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. Right here is where you get Paul's theology about princes. When did God divide the nations? Battle. All the terminology in Genesis is all about the division of the nations. And what does he do? He fixes the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Now, if you're reading a translation... If you're reading a translation out of the Masoretic text, one taken from the Middle Evil times, the Middle Ages, they have replaced all the supernatural in this with a historic Israel. So that's why some versions will say sons of Israel there instead of sons of God. They do it again later on in Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. If you read the Masoretic text of this, this is from the ESV. If you read the Masoretic text produced from this, it says, Rejoice with him, O nations, bow down to him, all servants. For he avenges the blood of his people and takes vengeance on, I forgot what they translate that to. Um, It completely changes the entire chapter of Deuteronomy 32 from a spiritual view into a view on just the historic nation of Israel. So that's why when they find things like the old copies of the Septuagint, we'll go through that here. So here's, here's what the Masoretic text reads and what the Dead Sea Scrolls would read. Because when people criticize this idea, this is what they come back to. This, there's, there's people that have a hard time accepting this idea of other gods. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, that stayed the same with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic Text. When he divided humanity, stayed the same. When he fixed the borders of his people, the same. According to the number of the sons of Israel. According to the number of the sons of God. It's a different. Um... You can't see it because whoever made that image is just not a good image. But if you're close, you can see it. The Dead Sea Scrolls gets translated in the RSV and the ESV to sons of God. And there's other translations that are also using, they'll use the oldest text and the most compound text. The Masoretic text, which gets you into your NSAB, uh, your KJV, they'll do the sons of Israel. And then the Greek Septuagint, the oldest copies that we have of the Greek Septuagint, which is what they were using in the early church, it'll say the angels of God, which, which makes sense knowing what sons of God means. They translate it into angels, into the spiritual beings of God. So, so the Septuagint reinforces the Dead Sea Scrolls idea that they're spiritual beings being allotted. This is why when God gives us his Ten Commandments, the first two commandments are what they are. And we Sunday schoolize these 
and we teach people that these don't mean what they mean. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me besides me. What that really means is, what's a God to you? What's a God to you? Is it sports? Do you spend too much time on sports? Because the first commandment is telling you not to get too much into sports or too much into movies. Don't let those become your God. Anybody hear that stuff growing up? That verse, yeah, you could take, you could take that as a possible like modern time thing if we're not worshiping other gods. That verse means what it means. It means these fallen rulers that were set over the nations that you guys are whoring yourselves out to when you go and worship them, that's unacceptable. That's what that means. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the sea. They're going through all the cosmology of the spiritual beings right there. The waters under the earth, they're talking about the abyss. They're talking about Sheol. They're talking about where the demons are hanging out. They're talking about where the spiritual beings are over nations. Don't make idols of these beings and worship them. That's what it's saying. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on, your, on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Idols means idols. How many people have heard, well, idols could mean like your new boat. Don't spend too much time and your money worshiping your new boat. That's your idol. It's become an idol or your really nice truck. Now, this, this is about who are you loyal to? This makes sense in the context of what Paul is saying. You shall have no other gods before me that is above Yahweh or even beside Yahweh, because there are households that will take multiple gods and worship multiple gods. This still happens all around the world. You go into a Hindu house, which I've been in a Hindu house, you will have a mix of gods. You will have things set up in their home. Sometimes they even throw in, they'll throw in a Mother Mary there because they are associating Mary or Jesus as another divine being, just like their divine beings, and they're mixing it all together. This is still relevant. As a Western culture, we've taken all of this and we've spun it into a safe thing because people don't want to talk about the fact that there's other spiritual beings, there's other gods. Now, when I say other gods, people get hung up on the word God because when we say God as Westerners, we mean the one. It's not how gods were viewed back then. That's why Yahweh, when they would refer to Yahweh, they would refer to him as the most high because he was the creator God. What I am saying is the Tower of Babel is important because the Tower of Babel is where we get our princes. When you read Daniel, the prince of Israel, Michael, is fighting against the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. That's in your Bible. Those are princes. This is where they come from. They're princes over those regions. So, as an ancient person, this is why the Tower of Babel is important. This is why the church forefathers would refer to these three things that happened to humanity. This paints their cosmology. This paints everything that Paul is saying in all his different letters to different people. That's why he's, take, he, he's taking on their view of the gods. And the reason he's doing that is because these gods were allotted to these nations. These gods were allotted to these nations, but Jesus changed that. So let's read what Paul has to say about that. First, we'll go through it. Tower of Babel brings disunity, temporary divorce from Yahweh for the nations. Yahweh takes out his own. Jacob's family is his portion. Humanity is confused. They're given over to spiritual overseers. Psalm 82 said those spiritual overseers got corrupted. That's what Psalm 82 says. God did not put demonic overlords over top of nations. He put his counsel, the let us go down to Babylon counsel, over them. They were good when they started. Yahweh's not going to give you demons. Princes fall. They become corrupted. This becomes the third hurdle for humanity. Sin, death, Satan, the serpent dragon figure, demons, disunity fighting among humans, and now there's evil overseers. Those are, that's what is behind humanity's issues. That is what is behind humanity's issues today. We do not 
get angry with other humans and get upset about political leaders and people pushing crap. We get mad at what's behind them. Jesus says we love those humans. They're being influenced by what's above. Don't get, allow yourself to get worked up and angry and view other humans, other images of God like that. Fight against what's in back of it. You got to watch yourself. It's easy to, especially this day and age. This is the context of Ephesians 6. This is what Paul's coming out of. This is his understanding of how things work. And he references other places. We're going to talk about Colossians real quick, because Colossians is Paul's explanation of how Jesus fixes part of this. Jesus takes care of business in Galatians, or in Colossians. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. They're talking about the spiritual world there. So he's saying there's human traditions, there's human philosophies that'll trip you up. There's spiritual stuff that influences those philosophies that'll trip you up. And not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who are dead in your trespasses, there's that sin and death, Problem number one, the dead and the trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our legal trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He canceled sin. We agree with that. Sometimes we stop there. This next part is the important part. He set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Those are the same words as your principalities and powers. There's like Greek archon and different words there. Those are the same things that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 6. Those are those same princes that were over the nations. He disarmed them. They no longer have the power to do what they had done for thousands of years. They are still relevant. They're still out there. It says that they're heading for the lake of fire, but the lake of fire has not happened yet. They're still influencing things, but they don't have a grip over the nations. Jesus broke that grip. We look back. We look back to the Old Testament. We look back to Rahab, the lady running the whorehouse in Jericho. She had that believing loyalty. She realized her rulers were not the real rulers. Yahweh was the real ruler going back to our Jericho story. And she made the connection right there, and she switched her loyalty to Yahweh 100%. She became part of Jesus' lineage. Naaman, when he has leprosy, goes to Israel because he wants to do something about his leprosy. And the prophet of God tells him, go wash in the river. Go do it. He washes. He, get, he eventually, through the story, he gets rid of his leprosy. He realizes that now he's got to go back to the turf of another God. So what does he ask? It's the strangest thing. What did he ask for? Does anybody remember? He asked for a cart of dirt from Israel because that was Yahweh's territory so that when he went and did his prayers, he was going to do his prayers on Yahweh's territory. This idea is all the way through the Bible. He switched loyalty to Yahweh right there. And he's mentioned in the heroes of faith in the New Testament, that loyalty switch. That's what's going on. That's what the Tower of Babel did. If you don't want me, if you don't want me as a God, here we are. We already had to do the decreation event, and you're doing the same thing again, humanity. So I'm going to have to pick that family again, just like I picked Noah's family. I'm going to pick Jacob's family. You guys want your own rulers? You can have your own rulers. And I'll bring you back later. Here's my way. I'm going through Jacob's family. Does that make sense? That's the Tower of Babel. That's why it's important. That's why it's in there. It's not just people trying to build a high tower that can break through the heavens and do something cool that I don't know what people do when they teach us this stuff. It's not that. That's what it is. And the good news is that those rulers given out at the Tower of Babel have been taken care of. All right. Here's the Pentecost twist. Genesis 10 was the Table of Nations. Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel, and today is Pentecost Sunday, so here we go. 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So automatically, you can think back to Genesis 11, where they're all given different tongues. But now what is the tongues doing? Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are, these, are all these, not all these, who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia. Sounds like last week, doesn't it? Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Those areas cover everything I showed you in that map last week. All the nations were in one place, and then God reverses the language issue by giving them the ability to speak in tongues of other language. And he brings them all back in. Here is your invitation back into the kingdom of God. This is a reversal of Babel. Pentecost is about the reversal of Babel. Isn't that cool? That's cool. So... That's just kind of, that's the importance of the Tower of Babel. That's where you dig in and go beyond the Sunday school level. That's where you get. And if you, if you understand this worldview now, if you go through your Old Testament and as you're reading different things, things make more sense. When Moses has his way in Egypt and he brings the Israelites out, the Bible specifically says, and Yahweh had his victory over the gods of Egypt. That's not just thrown in there. That was a reality. Yahweh was showing them up because that's who he is. He is the most high. He is the creator God. And then we get Yahweh in flesh as Jesus Christ who comes and he takes care of everything while on earth. That's amazing to me. And that's what Genesis 1 through 11, as we finish Genesis 1 through 11, Genesis 1 through 11 is important because Jesus is going to take care of all that all taken care of now. Every single one of those problems. That's why Jesus makes a ministry of taking care of those unclean spirits. We talked about the spirits of the Nephilim, those giants that died in the flood. Their spirits remain on earth. They're not, they, weren't, they were not in God's order. They remain on earth. Those are your unclean spirits. The hybrid spirits, remember for the Jews, mixing of stuff makes something unclean. That's your unclean spirit word. Jesus is dealing with all the issues from Genesis 6. When he's casting out spirits, Jesus takes care of the princes, whatever. There's so much in the spiritual realm. We know about cherubim and seraphim, and you have those thrones and the wheel creatures and all that weird stuff. I don't know all of it. We don't know exactly what's going on there, but there's so much going on in the spiritual world. There were so many issues. Jesus did it all. And so that's where I'm going to leave that. That's why one through 11 is important. This is also why a lot of preachers don't want to go through one through 11 because some crazy stuff compared to what we teach as Western Christians. Um, I have lots of sources for this. I can give you PDFs full of resources if you'd like to dig into the old church father, like the histories, if you'd like to, any of that stuff. If you'd like to go back and look at some of the text translation stuff, it's, it's all available. And in, in a lot of modern academies, this stuff is now starting to be addressed because we have all these resources that we've dist- discovered through archaeology. We're like, oh, okay, yeah, this makes sense. That makes sense now. That's not a weird thing. Why does Nahum want a cart of dirt? Why does this dude want a cart of dirt? Nobody knew why this guy wanted a cart of dirt until they understand this worldview. And then you're like, okay, it's not just a weird Bible thing. So the Bible is full of that. And as I have gotten more into this worldview... I have learned to love Yahweh and Jesus, Holy Spirit, more for what they've done because I'm seeing everything that they've done and it paints a reality. We talk about these things like, oh yeah, Jesus, he, he sits at the right hand of God. Well, what does that mean? If these things don't exist, what does it mean? What, we, we sing it in a song. This is, what a beautiful name is great because what a beautiful name in the bridge 
You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name, highlighted name, because that's the title of Jesus above all names. If there are no other names, if there are no other gods, there are no rivals. There are no equals to even sing about. Does that make sense? So people are singing this stuff because some people believe it and they're writing it. It's in here. It's just, now you know what you're singing about. Now you know why that's a powerful, for me, that's a great bridge. That, well, that whole song is full of theology. You can do a sermon on each of the verses too. But um, yeah, that's the worldview. And I could just keep babbling about it. So I'm going to quit. So, all right. Dear Lord, we thank you for everything you've done once again. And Lord, we thank you for there's not one problem that you didn't take care of. There's not one thing you let go. And Lord, we look forward to the end. We look forward to that lake of fire and we see all of this stuff disappear. We thank you that you are a God of justice, but at the same time, you are a God that takes mercy on all of us humans. And Lord, we thank you that you wanted to reign on earth with us. And Lord, we, we, we look to step into our kingdom authority and our kingdom rule with you on earth. So Holy Spirit, I just ask that you'd show us more and more on how to do what we need to do for that. How do we spread the name of Jesus? How do we bring this to people who are still living in submission to the ruler of this age and the princes and the demons? So Lord, just help us with that. And help us as we, as we read our Bible. Show us all these cool connections as we go through. Show us all these weird things where you, Yahweh, are showing us your personality and your power. We just want to know more about you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for all the things you did with the cross, with the resurrection, with the ascension, and with the seating of you at the right hand of God. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming and also taking care of the remaining problems. We love you. Jesus, in your name we pray this.